So let's jump into this message that Isaiah gives. He's continuing on from where we were last week. There's many similarities between what he said last week and what he's saying this week. The big difference is that last week he was talking about becoming free from Babylon, and this week he's talking about becoming free from sin. See, the people had two big problems. The people of Israel had not just one. They thought they just had a problem. They were in Babylon. But they had another problem, and that problem was what caused them to go to Babylon in the first place, which was their rebellion against God. And so last week, God tells the people, don't fear. I am God alone. I'm bigger than the idols, and I'm going to deliver you from Babylon. This week, in this passage that follows right along after it, God is saying, do not fear. I am God alone. I'm greater than the idols, and I'm going to free you from your sins. So a very similar pattern in those two weeks. So the issue that Isaiah is dealing with is this idea of being blind to reality. It reminded me of a time when I was driving in Colorado many years ago and driving, I was trying to get to Aspen, but of course as you drive the back roads of Colorado, you're in the middle of nowhere. And I picked up a hitchhiker, and which wasn't all that unusual for me in those days. And he started talking about this conspiracy. There was a whole organization that was trying to get him, was trying to capture him. I'm not sure what they wanted to do with him. Now, when you're walking or when you're driving in the, the wilds of Colorado, you, you don't really want to get into an argument with a guy that might be a little bit woohoo in the head. And so I started asking him questions. Well, so what kind of organization is this? How do you know that they're after you? How do they keep track of you? Just logical questions. And he had an answer for every one of my questions. It was very logical. And if I didn't know that it was clearly not true, I could have been convinced. He was a very reasonable-sounding guy. Most of us, at some time in our lives, have lived in a false reality like that. Now, many people accused me for the first many years of my life of being in a kind of false reality because I wanted the Cubs to win a World Series. <laughs> 2016, they won. So all of my fantasies were realized in one fabulous October in 2016. But the the serious side of this is that all of us, at some time or another, hold on to a false reality where we deceive ourselves. And that involves holding on to false gods and not understanding who the true God is. And many people never wake up from that false deception, that, that self-deception that, that leads them in a false direction. So, as I said, in this passage, we're learning that being stuck in Babylon was not their only problem. 
they had a bigger problem, which was their sin problem. So God says in this passage that he's planning to deliver the people from their sin, and this applies to future generations as well. So rather than a big idea, I'm going to present the four connected parts of this message that we're going to talk about. So Israel's message is presented in four connected parts. So number one, Israel has not served God. Two, God will pour out the Holy Spirit and give life. Three, the Lord is the only God and idols are nothing. And finally, four, God will redeem his people. So that's the big idea in an outline form. Now in chapter 43, verse 21, which was the last verse that we covered last week, God says about Israel, they are the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Now, it would be nice if Isaiah could then just move on from here and say, okay, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to give you my spirit, and don't fear. But he can't do that because the people are in no way prepared to be a people to declare God's praise. So in verse 21, he says, I formed you to declare my praise. But now he's got to back up and say, no, there's a problem here. You guys are not ready to do that. So we get into our passage now. Chapter 43, verse 22. And that brings us to our first major point, that Israel has not served God, and God is their only hope. Israel has not served God, and God is their only hope. So what we find out first in verses 22 and 23 is that Israel is weary of God. God says in verse 22, You did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. So they're weary of him. Now, why were they weary in Babylon, they were not even having to bring sacrifices to the temple. And even when they were bringing sacrifices, the whole purpose for it was a time of celebration. You get to come to God's house. You get to stand in his presence. You get to offer to God in love, and you get to rejoice in what you're doing. And God will bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a time of joy. But they're saying, oh, it's a weariness, it's a burden. Later on, Malachi would say the same thing about the people. Oh, what a weariness it is to, to serve God. So they're saying it's weariness, but God says, in fact, no, Israel has enslaved me and wearied me. Now the ESV says, in verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins. But that word burden can also be translated, you have made me serve you. For those of you who are taking notes, Exodus 1.13 talks about the Egyptians making Israel serve as slaves. Same word. So we can also translate this, Israel has enslaved me. Not that they've really done it, but they would 
like to be able to enslave God. So all the religious exercises are designed to make God their servant. Hey, we want you to help us. We want you to serve us. We don't want you as you are. We want to create a God that serves us. However you take this, burdening God or making God serve them, their religious exercises were not reaching God. They're hitting the ceiling and falling back to the floor. Then in verse 25, God brings them to a truth that he has to keep on emphasizing to them, only I can solve your sin problem. Only God can solve Israel's sin problem. So this is the promise God is making. I'm offering to blot out all your sins. Notice what he says. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. He's emphasizing, I'm the only one. And I will not remember your sins. But why is he bringing this up now? Why point out that I'm the only one that can save you from your sins? And I'm doing it for my sake. Not for your sake, for my sake. Why bring this up? Well, because Israel does not understand yet that they need God. They still imagine that somehow they deserve what God gave them, and they didn't deserve to go to Babylon. What are we doing here? We didn't deserve this. They're blind, and that's going to be a key word throughout this entire section. They're blind to their need for God. So in the next verses, God challenges the people and he warns them. He challenges the people to stand up and say, hey, if I'm wrong, stand up and prove it. Verse 26, set forth your case that you may be proved right. I'm giving you a shot here. Stand up. Tell me why you're right and why I'm wrong. Well, apparently, they weren't able to do that because God continues on now and he sets forth his case. He says, your first father sinned in verse 27. Now, he might be talking about Abraham. He might be talking about Jacob. But in any case, any one of the fathers that they could point to sinned at some point and needed to turn to God and say, God, please blot out my sins. And then he said, your messengers as well. They have transgressed against me. In verse 27. Who are the messengers? Moses, Aaron. They're heroes, men of God, but they transgressed. Moses and Aaron were not allowed to enter the promised land because of what they did on one occasion. Now, God obviously forgave them, but they were men who needed to go to God and say, God, blot out my sins. So what does God say in warning now? He says in verse 28, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. 
And then he gives a very stark warning to Jacob and Israel. Now, Jacob and Israel are the same thing. This is poetry. He says, I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. What this means is that Israel is the exact opposite of what God intended them to be. Remember back in chapter 21, I mean, verse 21, he said, I created you for my praise. Israel is the exact opposite right now. They're saying, hey, we don't deserve this. We don't need God. We want you to serve us. We think we deserve any reward that, that, that we're going to get. How can they honor God? How can they send forth God's praises when their God is a false God? It has nothing to do with the God that's really there. So he warns Israel, I'm going to set you for utter destruction if you keep on this path. The word that's used there for utter destruction is the same word that's used when they destroyed Jericho, consigned it to the ban, utterly destroyed it. So what do we learn from this? Okay, you will be tested on this later. There are two religions in the world. Now, there's lots of names of religions, but there's essentially two religions. There's a religion of works. There's a religion of grace. Now, the works religion says, I work so I can get God or the higher power or the spiritual forces or the universe or whatever to give me a reward that I deserve. So the big idea is I save myself. Now, they might say, well, God helps me, but ultimately it's up to me. The other religion is the religion of grace. It says, I am a sinner. I cannot help myself. The big idea of that religion is only God can save me. And what it says is, God, be merciful to me. You can blot out my sins. So works and grace, two religions. All right, I'm going to test you on this later. Two religions. They can all be boiled down into those two categories. So after this stark warning, God says that his spirit is going to change the people. The Holy Spirit's going to come and bring a change. So our second main point here is that God will give life to Israel and to the nations by giving them the spirit. God will give life to Israel and to the nations by giving them the spirit. Now, notice the contrast here between verse 28 of the last chapter and verse, verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Actually, just verse 1. You've got Jacob to utter destruction, Israel to reviling. And now, chapter 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. Now, that is about as stark of a contrast as you can get. Last week, the message was entitled something like, but now God will do something. 
Well, this is the but now moment of this passage. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. I'm going to do something that's going to fix and change your reality. God's going to help Israel, his chosen one. He says in verse 3, Do not fear, Jacob. Sounds a lot like the passages we read last week. Do not fear. And Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, the outline that's in your bulletin, I didn't come up with. I probably would have skipped over Jeshurun, but one of the questions in your outline says, who is Jeshurun? So I have to cover it. So, yeah, Jeshurun only shows up four places in the entire Bible. And three times in Deuteronomy, and it's like a personal name for Israel. It's saying, Jeshurun, my friend. It's like something that a, a, a friend would give a nickname to another friend. And so he's calling them this, this nickname, this personal relationship nickname that he used back in the book of Deuteronomy. It only appears this place in the, in the prophets. And Isaiah is saying, you are my friend here. You have a relationship with me. Don't be afraid. I've chosen you. Jeshurun, my friend. And then he says what he's going to do. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on their descendants. God will pour out the Holy Spirit on them and their descendants. And he says it in a couple of different ways. One is figurative. I'm going to pour out waters on thirsty ground. Then actual, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then figurative again, they shall spring up among the trees like willows by flowing streams. The idea is that where the spirit of God goes, there is life. There's life. So most of us who live in Phoenix are, understand the idea of thirsty ground. He says, I'm going to pour out water on thirsty ground. And it's going to bloom. And it's going to be like trees are going to come up, and you're going to be like trees among the grass. You'll be like willows by flowing streams. Imagine that in the desert here. The Holy Spirit, from Genesis 1, 2, when he was hovering over the the face of the waters, all the way through the Bible, brings life. He brings order out of chaos. The Holy Spirit brings life. And that's the promise he's giving here. The solution will be the Holy Spirit. And people from all nations will call on the Lord and be, the, and be his people. People from all nations will call on the Lord. Well, where do I get that? Well, look at verse 5. It says, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Well, people in Israel don't have to name themselves by the name of Israel. What he's saying is that other people are going to call themselves by the name of God's people. Outside of Israel, the nations are going to come 
and they're going to identify with God's people. So the Spirit is going to bring about not only a renewal of Israel, but it's going to, it's going to bring the nations. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw the beginning of that. When the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost, that's when the, the good news of salvation went out to the nations. It began to go out to the nations. So people from all nations will call on the Lord. So what do we learn from this that maybe we can apply to ourselves? Well, we can go through times when it appears that God has forgotten about us. Or at least that he's got more important things to do than worry about my little problems. Obviously, he's got wars to think about and, and oceans to worry about and, and all sorts of important things like the, the, the orbit of Saturn, things like that. Why would he take care of me? But God says to us, do not fear, for I have given you the Holy Spirit. I poured out my love in your heart, Romans 5, 5. I have called you my son and daughter, Romans 8, 16. Do not fear. But this point in Isaiah's message, the people might be asking themselves, well, this is great, this is a wonderful promise, Isaiah, but we're stuck in Babylon right now. We're not seeing this. So how do we know we can trust this God? Well, God told them that last week. He's going to have to tell them that again. Well, not literally last week, but that's what we heard about last week. He's going to remind them again, why can you trust me to fulfill these promises? So in the next section, Isaiah is going to make the case that the Lord is the only God who can be trusted and that the, the other gods, the idols, are useless. So our third big point is that the Lord is the true God and idols are worthless. The Lord is the true God and idols are worthless. So in verse 6, he starts out, look at the names that he gives here. Thus says the Lord, that's be Yahweh, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Piles up these names for himself. And then he comes to the point, besides me there is no God. It's pretty much what he said back in chapter 43. Verse 8, he says, Fear not, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Pretty much the same case he made last week in our message, which was, I've declared it from the beginning, and you are my witnesses. Well, what did he declare that they would know about? Well, if Isaiah's immediate audience was the people in the 8th century, they knew that God had declared that the people of God would go into Egypt and be exiled and then 
um, come back out in the Exodus. They had been told that they would conquer the, the promised land, and they did. For those who were in Babylon 150 years later, who would also be reading this, God had said, I'm going to send you to Babylon. And all their prophets were saying, nah, that's not going to happen. Jeremiah, you're an idiot. You're, that's not going to happen. And Jeremiah said, yes, it is. And guess what? Jeremiah was right. Here you are. You're in Babylon. God declared it ahead of time. And you're my witnesses. You can testify to the fact that, yes, God kept his word, and here you are in Babylon exactly as God said. What does that show at the end of verse 8? Is there any God beside me? God says, there is no rock. I don't know of any. If there was one, I'd tell you about it. But no, there's no other God besides me. So now Isaiah shifts gears, and he's going to tell us a story. Now, preachers are always looking for sermon illustrations. Isaiah is giving a sermon illustration. It's really cool. So he, he starts out and he brings a story, but it has an introduction. So really, verses 9 through 20 are the story, but it, there's an introduction to the story. And the introduction is that makers of idols are empty and and uh, idols are, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm not seeing it yet, but oh, there we go. Makers of idols are empty and idols are worthless. Now, for those of you who are interested at all in the Hebrew language, there's a shift here. There's a shift from poetry to prose, to non-poetry. Um, to, to illustrate that, most of us are familiar with "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were all hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there." That's poetry. Now, if we change that over to prose, it becomes like, man, I was minding in my own business in my, in my living room, and Santa Claus came down the chimney, and it freaked me out, man. That's prose. Okay, so poetry and prose. So he switches over now and starts telling a story. And it's a story that is probably the most hard-hitting attack on idolatry that you'll find in the Bible. Maybe the most hard-hitting attack on idolatry. It just points out how ridiculous it is. So he starts out, and he says in verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. Now that word for nothing is the Hebrew word tohu. And it's the same word that we see in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. Tohu wabohu. It's, it's that word for formless. So it's not a mistake here. He's saying that the, uh, the people who make the idols, not the idols, but the people who make them are as worthless as the earth before God said, let there be light. They're as worthless as pre-light chaos. That's how much use they are to you. 
Then he says in verse 9b, their witnesses are blind. Remember, you are witnesses to the fact that God declared from the beginning. Their witnesses, they're blind. They're like their idols. They're blind like their idols. Then he says what the end is going to be. The end of verse 11. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. It's all going to come to nothing. Those who trust in them, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be left with nothing. They're going to be left with worse than nothing. All their hopes are going to be dashed. When their gods ultimately fail them, that's going to be it. So now he moves into the story. That's the introduction. Now he moves into the story. So the story is the tale of the idol maker. And so I'm going to read a couple of the verses because Isaiah is telling the story here. So verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Well, that's interesting. This is the guy that's making the idols, the guy that is tohu, that's nothing. I guess tohu sounds a little bit like tofu. I think tofu is pretty, pretty useless myself, but <laughs> if anybody likes tofu, I'm not going to get into an argument about that. They're useless. They're tohu. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, and while he's doing it, he gets hungry, and then he drink, doesn't drink any water, and he gets faint. This, this person who's making the idol, he's a human, and he's subject to all the weaknesses of human beings. Okay, now let's follow on with the story. The next couple of verses, he says, so where does he get the wood for this idol? Well, he either gets a cedar tree or a cypress tree or an oak tree, quality wood. Or even grows a tree. He grows a cedar for himself. He, he lets it get watered. He cuts it down. Now, in verses 16 and 17, he goes on with this, this story. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now the sarcasm is thick here. Can anybody read this and not think, Boy, how ridiculous. He gets a piece of wood, he cuts it in half, half of it he burns in the fire so he can cook his food and bake his bread. The other half, he carefully takes and planes and measures and writes notes on it and turns it into an idol. And is he supposed to then worship that idol, fall down to the block of wood? How insane is that? How blind is that? So now we get to the lesson. The final couple of verses here, 18 through 20, is the lesson that the Lord is going to teach them. 
The lesson is those who make idols are blind and deceived. So verse 18 says, they are blind because the Lord has shut their eyes. Verse 19 asks the question. No one considers, nor is there knowledge. Half of it I burn in the fire. I bake bread on it. And then at the end he says, nobody asks the question, shall I fall down before a block of wood? And then here's the summary in verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? They are unable to see how ridiculous this whole thing is, this whole process is. Well, what have they become? We read Psalm 115 earlier. It said in verse 8, those who make them will become like them, even those who trust them. People who trust in blind and deaf idols are going to become blind and deaf spiritually. Okay, blind and deaf idol, you trust in it, you become blind and deaf spiritually. That's what happens. All right, so how do we apply this? Well, we know better than those people, don't we? We're smarter than them. They were primitive. We don't worship things we make, right? Well, this is called a, this is a, a Pixel 6, and Google doesn't advertise it as an idol. And actually, this is not the idol. The, the people imagined that the block of wood contained the God. So the God inhabited, so it wasn't the piece of wood that was powerful, it was the God who inhabited the piece of wood. But think about this. If you have to trust in a God and you have to contact this God in a piece of wood, how powerful is that God? Pretty pathetic, right? So the idea is not that we necessarily trust in that object, but what are we trusting in? So how many people trust in science and technology and medicine to get them through their lives? I'm not saying how many people use science and technology and medicine. We all use, we all use them. I'm asking how many people trust in technology and science and medicine instead of trusting in their creator? Who are the priests of this technological religion, this modern religion? Well, the scientists, the engineers, the doctors. Where the shrines of these things, the Apple store, the hospital, the laboratories. But behind all of these things is humanity. 
The people that make these things are like those idol makers. They have to warm themselves. They have to eat. They have to drink. If they don't, they get tired. They have to sleep. And ultimately, they die. So do we put our trust in humanity and its achievements that's going to fail us, or do we put our trust in the Creator, God, who made it all, who sits outside of it and looks at it, as it said in chapter 40, it's like grasshoppers to Him. Which one do we trust in? And God asked this question. They can't see They can't ask the question, shall I fall down before a block of wood? And we can't often ask the question, shall I trust in this stuff that mankind made? Anybody been by a junkyard lately? All those cars that were wonderful are just pieces of rotting junk now. In a couple of years, this thing's going to be sitting in a drawer unused. So until our eyes are opened and we see God for who He really is, all we do is we we worship a God of our own making. Okay, so how many religions are there? Two. Good, thank you. I told you I would test you. There's a religion where we Serve the only true God, the God who created, the God who says, you can't manipulate me. I just want you to serve me and I'll take care of you. Just love me and I will take care of you. Then there's the other religion that says, I'm going to work for this God who I want to serve me and I'm going to get what I deserve and this God is a worthless Tohu, a worthless nothing. So now that Isaiah has made his case, now he's going to back up and say, now, what does this God have to give to you? So the fourth big point is God will redeem his people from all sins. And this one goes relatively quickly. He's got three commands in here. First one is remember. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. There's that my servant language again from the beginning of the chapter. I formed you. You are my servant. He repeats himself. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. So you've been off in the land of make-believe, following false gods, but I am going to redeem you. Verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. It's returning back to chapter 43, verse 25, where he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Now he says, I have blotted out your transgressions and your sins. And so the next command is return. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then finally, the final command is respond, sing, sing. Now we're saying that to the heavens, sing, O heavens, sing, O depths, sing, O earth, sing forests, sing trees, 
very much like the Psalms here. But he's telling us to rejoice in what God has done. And he ends with, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So what do we learn from this? Well, God calls us to return to him. We may be going through a, an uncertain time right now. We may feel like God is nowhere around. Or you may feel that you've messed things up so badly that God could never, ever fix it. I think most of us have felt that way at some time in our lives. I've really messed, I've, I've, I've gone beyond what God can fix. This is, this is it. I'm done. And God says, you are my servant. You are my servant. You will not be forgotten by me. I have redeemed you. Turn to me. That's the message for us today. That's the message for Trinity Baptist Church today. So how does God redeem us when we are lost and dead in sin? Well, Isaiah clearly didn't know all the details. Now looking back, we can say, yes, Jesus Christ came. The Son of God came and sacrificed himself on a cross to pay for our sins. He shed his blood. We sang that song a little bit earlier. Jesus, my only trust is in your blood. That's how he redeemed us. And if we turn from our sins, we repent, we turn to Christ as the one who can save us from our sins, who can blot out our sins, who can say, I will remember them no more, then God gives us his spirit so that we can love and serve him. We've been talking a lot about blindness and lies today. Let me just close with something that's sort of the epitome of lies. So back in Nazi Germany, the idea was that people often won't accept a little lie, but they'll accept a big lie. It's easier to get people to, to accept a big lie than a little lie. And the way that they characterized Adolf Hitler's philosophy was people will believe in a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Well, we're being bombarded with the other religion all the time. The big lie. The big lie that somehow we deserve what the universe gives us. We can work our way to get it. It's up to me. And God is saying, no, I'm the one who can save you. You need me and me alone. But you will not be forgotten by me. The biggest lie of all is idolatry, that false gods can be trusted. And what does God say? God says, trust in me. What does he say to you and me? The Lord is the only God. What does it say to Trinity Bible today? You are the only God who can save me. Or the Lord is the only God who can save. We say to him, you are the only God who can save me. God is saying, you are God's servants. You are not forgotten by me. Let's pray.